Well, today, literally thousands of messages will be preached about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I have yet to figure out what was triumphant about it. So I've called this message the formal presentation of Jesus as King. If you would uh, turn to the Gospel of John for a moment. In chapter 11... Verses 1 through 44 talk about the, the miraculous resurrection of, of Lazarus from the dead. Matt Lazarus was a very dear friend of Jesus, brother of Martha and Mary. But I'd like you to jump ahead now to verse 45. It says there that many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and they said, What do we? For this man does many miracles. And that has been the question for the last 2,000 plus years. What will you do with Jesus? That's the question that confronts every person who hears about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you would move down to to verse 48. They said this, "If if we leave him alone, all men are going to believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away both our, our place and the nation. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim. And there he continued with his disciples. And I have a little map up here, which show you just a little bit of idea of where Ephraim was located. Now Jesus, Ephraim, is right over here. There's Jericho, and uh, there's Bethphage, and Bethany is right over here, and there's Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't go to Ephraim because he feared death. He knew he would die in Jerusalem. He had spoken about his death for years, really. So he wasn't fearing death, but he would control what happens. So Ephraim was a place of temporary seclusion from public ministry. And that would be late in the winter of 33 AD. It was located 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Now some scholars believe that Ephraim is the Old Testament city of Oprah, which was the hometown of Gideon, if you remember the story. So it's not certain how long Jesus stayed there. It could have been a few days, it could have been a week, it could have been several weeks. But when he leaves Ephraim, he starts on his final journey to Jerusalem. He goes back down the Jordan Valley to Jericho. In Luke 17 and 11, it says, And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And actually, in Luke 9, he it said that he, that, he, that he had set his face 
toward Jerusalem. And then in Luke 18, he talks to his disciples again about what would happen to him there in Jerusalem. So really, Jesus was in control of all things, even the time and the place of his death. But he passed through Jericho before he would go to Bethany and then to Bethphage and then enter Jerusalem. And two notable events occurred there in Jericho. One was the conversion of a, of a small guy. You remember his name? He climbed up into a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus. And he ended up having dinner with Jesus. Zacchaeus, we know, was the, was the chief tax collector. So he was a man who was absolutely hated by everybody. But according to Mosaic law, around 23% of a man's annual income was expected to be given to the poor. Zacchaeus, upon his repentance, was willing to give twice that amount. And then in Exodus 22, the law required a thief to pay back double for what he had stolen. Zacchaeus offered to pay back fourfold. Four times what he had taken from people. So unlike the the rich young ruler who would not part with his wealth to follow Jesus, the heart of Zacchaeus was truly changed. So we see in that man a a picture of, of genuine repentance. And then another notable event occurred there, and that was the healing of two blind men in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. One of them was named, and his name was Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Remember, he was crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy upon me. And Jesus came to him, or they brought him to Jesus, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I could see. And then there's a credible miracle there, and the Bible says, he, he regained his sight and, and he started to follow Jesus. He was going to join that entourage following Jesus wherever he was going. So Jesus then leaves Jericho with his disciples and he sends to, up to Jerusalem. And that was a hard 18-mile uphill trip. Now one of the springs, we have a picture here, one of the springs not far off the route to Jerusalem is the Parath Spring. And it's really a place that people go to today in Israel and this would have been a place where a lot of those pilgrims would have stopped to thirsty pilgrims would have stopped to to drink on their way up to um, Jerusalem what was the big talk in town in Jerusalem at that time would Jesus show up would he be there would he be coming would he be coming to the Passover it says in John eleven fifty five, and the Jews' Passover was near at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now Jesus, because of this tremendous miracle-working ministry, he had attracted a, a large crowd of people. 
And actually, when he was leaving Ephraim and, and, and going down to Jerusalem, he, he probably did it incognito. He probably joined that band of pilgrims that would be coming down from Galilee to the Passover and hid himself probably as best as he could among them. And, uh, but he had a tremendous following at this time. So from Jericho, he goes to, to Bethany. And he spends the night there. Now, this would have probably been Friday night, and he spent Saturday night there in Bethany. And something notable happened there in Bethany. And that was the anointing of Jesus by Mary. So in John chapter 12, it says this. You can look in your scriptures. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spicknard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This is a remarkable scene. It says that the whole house was filled with the odor of, of this ointment. It was very costly. It would have been the equivalent of several hundred days' wages for an ordinary laborer at that time. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag, the money bag. And he bore what was put therein. Then said Jesus, leave her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she done this. For the poor always you have with me, but me you have not always. So we see here that Jesus knew exactly what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And he was accepting the Father's will that he would die. Now, the, the raising of Lazarus was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back as far as the chief priests and the Sadducees and the religious authorities were concerned. Following that miracle, because of his tremendous popularity, they issued a death sentence on Jesus without any trial. So it was just a matter of carrying it out. But it was interesting in that story that Mary, you know, Blessed Mary, really. She, she knew what the, what the disciples didn't. That Jesus was, was going to die. And it says there in John, it says that many of the people therefore knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. So not only get rid of Jesus, but get rid of, of, of Lazarus because no doubt he would be telling everybody about what Jesus had done for him. Now the Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. That's the Jewish month of Nisan, which would be equivalent to our April. Which meant that Jesus was in Bethany on the 9th, six days before Passover. And he entered Jerusalem on the 10th. It's interesting that some people work this out and they put it on on Monday. I remember Doug Bookman said that one of his favorite teachers, Harold Honer, did that with his chronology and he says, but but whoever heard of a Palm Monday, right? 
It just doesn't sound right, you know. And it actually doesn't work out right. So he goes to Bethany. And here's a picture of Bethany. The name Bethany means, means house of figs. And uh, there is a Roman Catholic church over on the left there and a Greek Orthodox church over on the right. And the tomb of Lazarus is located there as well. A lot of pilgrims go there. So the Bethany was the house, the house of figs. It was on the south side of the Mount of Olives, probably a mile and a half to two miles from Jerusalem. All four of the gospel writers record Christ's entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And that's really pretty rare for all four Gospels to record an event. They do some, some with the miracles of Christ, but, and uh, the, I think the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. But Mark and Luke make it evident that this was Christ's official presentation to Israel of her long-promised king. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. A donkey, not a mule, but a donkey, a beast of burden. Now I said that Bethany was located to the south side, of, to the south of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives. And Bethphage, which was called the House of Ripe Figs, was located to the west, on the western side. It was actually really an extension of the city of Jerusalem at that, that, that time. Now, what many people did not recognize in this event was, it, was that it was not only the presentation of Israel's king, but it was the king's rejection of them, the beginning of his rejection of them. A great multitude of people, just imagine this. He met them there in Bethphage. You know how the, Jesus worked out all the details and told the disciples to go and he's going to find this man with a, with a, with a donkey there and, and they're, they're going to unloose this donkey and then these people are going to say to him, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the master has need of him. And then no questions asked. Some people think, well, uh, it must sounds like Jesus, you know, kind of prearranged this. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Jesus was evidently controlling all things. We know that. He was in charge of his own destiny. But in his foreknowledge, he knew exactly what would take place there. He was the Lord of all. And he was doing this, you know, just, just to bring about in a sense, his own death. So these people greeted him as he made his way into the city from Bethany. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, it says this, And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Again, that question. You know, what are you going to do with him? What do we do with this man? Who is this man? Same questions people are asking today. And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Well, Matthew said there that the whole city was moved, which was a big problem for the Jewish leadership. Because, think about it, 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 it appeared to be that a sedition against Rome was brewing. 
And Jesus was at the head of it. He was seen as the liberator. This is what they were looking for. Remember Jerusalem and the people and Israel was in bondage to Rome. Pompey came in and, and conquered Israel, the land of Israel and Jerusalem in 63 BC. And the Jews, even though the leadership had a working relationship with Rome and they allowed them to practice their religion, the people, the Jews hated the Romans. And they wanted to be free from them. So they were looking for someone to come and save them. Not from their sins, but from the tyranny of Rome. And of course, this incident by Jesus would threaten the Jewish leadership. It it would threaten their power. It would threaten their prestige. And it would threaten their money. It was also a threat to Rome. Richard Horsley, in a work, an article called The Message and the Kingdom, says, Impressive archaeological remains of the Jerusalem residences of the priesthood show how elegant their lifestyle had become. This corrupt priesthood at the time of Christ. In spacious structures called mansions by the archaeologists who uncovered them in the 1970s, we get a glimpse of a lavish lifestyle. Mosaic floored reception rooms, dining rooms with elaborate painted and carved stucco wall decorations with a wealth of fine tableware, glassware, carved stone tops, gold, and other interior furnishings and elegant items. They were rich. They were profiting off the people. And this was a threat to them. This man, Jesus, the crowd was following him. And we all know what Jesus had to say about the the Pharisees and the, the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So it's really no wonder when you consider that lifestyle why Jesus condemned them as hypocrites. He said that they were whited sepulchers. They were whited on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. And at the time of the Passover, literally, they would take like a chalk type of a paint and they would paint the, the tombstones the, the, the tombs at that time. So make everything look good. And that's what Jesus was referring to. You're just like those whited sepulchers, tombs. On the outside, they look good. But what's inside? Dead men's bones. And look, people can look very religious. They could appear to be very good. But inside, they're corrupt. They're corrupt. So people, people today, the same way, just a lot of corruption, even in the world of religion, so to speak. I was telling a couple yesterday or Friday that I had a guy come out the other day to give me an estimate for a job that I was getting done. His name was Isaac. So I came up to him and I says, hey, you got a good biblical name. And he says, I know. So then we got talking. He says, so he says, what do you do? He asks me, and I like that question. And I, I says, well, I pastor a church. Oh, he said, you are a religious man. Oh, I said, no, Isaac, I am not a religious man. And he stopped, and he says, what do you mean? You're not a religious man. And I got to explain to him the difference between a religion and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So pray for Isaac. I had a really actually spent quite a long time talking to him. Guess what his main problem was? With Jesus, with God, with the Bible. His problem was 
I've gone through really hard times in my life. And I look at what's happening in the world today and the Ukraine and the suffering, and I say to myself, if there's God, why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he do something about the evil in this world and the bad people in this world? And I stopped him and I said, Isaac, what would he do with you? And it got his attention. Because it gave me a chance to tell him about Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the difference between a holy God and sinful men. And then why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. So John 12, verse 12. On the next day, this would have been Sunday. Many people that were coming to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. As his entourage leaves Bethphage took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, which means what? Save now. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things Understood not his disciples at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that were written of him and what they had done, these things to him. Jesus, Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures, didn't he? He quoted the Old Testament scriptures, the law, you know, the prophets in the writings frequently. He knew Zechariah. He knew this prophecy from Zechariah you know, about, the lamb, about him coming, the king coming into Jerusalem in the manner that he did, Zechariah 9.9, which we looked at before. And he also was very familiar because he quoted it later on, the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, smite the shepherd and what? And the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happened with the disciples when he brought it up. What did they do? After he was put to death, they fled. The, the shepherd was smitten and the sheep scattered. So it says here in verse, John chapter 12, verse 17, The people therefore that were with him when he called Lazarus out of the graves and raised him from the dead bore record. For this cause the people also met him. This is what made him so popular. For, the, for they had heard he had done this great miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the whole world is going after him. We have to stop this. We have to stop this. And what did they want Jesus to do when these people were praising him, shouting out, Hosanna, save us now. They wanted Jesus to silence his disciples. And what did Jesus say? The very what? The very rocks would cry out. Why palm branches? When I was a Catholic in the church on Palm Sunday, we would go and everybody would, would give you a, or they'd give you a palm. It was supposed to be a, a blessed palm. And you were supposed to put that palm in, in, in your house somewhere, invisible, and it was supposed to bring good things to, to your house, kind of protect your, protect your house of some sorts. Well, of course, it never does. But these, these people brought palms. And the Jewish use of palm branches in processional originated, I think, at the time of the Maccabees when they recaptured the temple of Jerusalem from the Syrians 
in 164 BC. Now, the story goes like this. There was a Seleucid Syrian emperor named Antiochus Epiphanes. He called himself, Epiphany means God manifest. And Antiochus called himself Epiphanes, God manifest. A picture of the Antichrist to come. The Jews hated him because he wanted to Hellenize the world. He wanted to do away with every trace of of Judaism. So they called him Antiochus Epimenes, not the God-man, the madman. So he invades there with his, with his troops. In 167 BC, he comes into the city of Jerusalem. And lo and behold, what does he do? He, he kills a pig. And he sacrifices that pig on the altar in Jerusalem. Thoroughly desecrating the altar. Showing utter contempt for the God of Israel. Well, that didn't go over too well with the people. So there was a Jewish priest named Matthias. And he led an organized resistance that was aided by his five sons. And the, well, the most well-known of his sons was Judas Maccabeus. And he, they gave him the name The Hammer. Judas the Hammer. So he led this revolt against Antiochus and he was successful and the Jews retook Jerusalem and they retook the temple grounds in 164 BC and what the story says is that they lit the holy lamp the Jewish menorah you all know what a menorah is but but the menorah only had enough oil for one night So the story goes that miraculously the lamp stayed lit for eight days until they could procure more oil for the holy menorah. Now this story is not recorded in the scripture but it is recorded in the apocryphal books of the Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees in particular. Apocryphal means hidden. The Maccabee, the two books of the Maccabees are not inspired scripture, but they have some just really valuable history in it, including this time, which we don't have record of. So it says, and I'm going to read this to you from 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 1. When Maccabees and his companions under the Lord's leadership had recovered the temple in the city, which I just told you about, they destroyed the altars erected by the foreigners in the marketplace. Those were altars to pagan gods. And, uh, and their sacred shrines, they tore them down. After purifying the temple, because it had been desecrated by this pig that was sacrificed on the altar, they made another altar, a new altar. Then with fire struck from flint, they offered sacrifices for the first time in two years. They burned incense and they lit the lamps. They also set out the showbread. And when they had done this, they prostrated themselves and begged the Lord that he might never, never again allow such misfortunes, and that if any should sin at any time, he would chastise them with moderation and not hand them over to the blasphemous and barbarous Gentiles, because they saw this as a judgment on the nation for their sins. So then this record goes on. On the anniversary of the day on which the temple had been profaned by the foreigners, 
That is the 25th month, day of the month Kislev, the purification of the temple took place. Well, what did the Jews do? They kept eight festival days, days of rejoicing in the manner of the Feast of Shelters, booths, remembering not long before at the time of the Feast of Booths that they had been living in the mountains and caverns like wild beasts. But here's the part that I wanted to get to, it's, which is tied in, I think, with this significance of the palms on Palm Sunday. Then carrying thyruses, I don't know what that is, leafy boughs and palms, they offered hymns to him who had brought the cleansing of his own holy place to a happy outcome. So here you go. After their liberation from the desecration of Antiochus, the madman, they, they waved palms, palm branches, really with symbolism of the liberation that they had experienced. So it's no accident that the people waved palms when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. It, it was a symbol of rejoicing, was a symbol of liberation. They thought that Jesus was going to liberate Jerusalem again from the control of the Romans this time, not the Syrians. So that's why all the praise upon Christ's entry into the city. What were these people doing? Stop and think about it. This wasn't a religious celebration. This was not a religious celebration. They were proclaiming their nationalistic pride and their desire to be free of Roman rule. They wanted to stamp out every trace of the Romans. And they thought they had the man to do it. After all, he could raise people from the dead. He had a large crowd of people following him. And you know what's interesting? Jesus was doing all these miracles, and a lot of times he would do miracles, and then he would tell nobody, he would tell people what don't say anything. The theologians call this particularly in the Gospel Mark the messianic secret. That Jesus would say, don't say anything. Because he didn't want anything, you know, premature celebrations and, you know, forcing him into the position of, of being the liberator now. It was all done according to his time. Now, people oftentimes couldn't hold back what Jesus had done for them. So they'd go and say things anyway. And, and Jesus would have to, to leave sometimes to get out of there. So William Henrik writes, As Jesus rode by the crowd, they shouted, Blessed is the King of Israel! And that message was clear. They were looking, he says, from deliver, for deliverance from Roman tyranny, and, and they tied that hope to Jesus, whose miraculous power made him a powerful foe to the Romans. And by presenting palm branches to him, the people were declaring their loyalty to him as the victorious general or, or king might expect. He was the one. He was the man. Then the crowd shouted, Hosanna, a biblical term of praise to God. But since the Maccabean revolt, it had been redefined with a nationalistic meaning. Deliver us. Hosanna. Save us now. Give us our freedom, right? Give us our rights back. The religious leaders feared 
that such proclamations would bring out the Roman guards. So they told Jesus to keep his disciples quiet. They would not have requested silence if the people were merely praising God. They knew exactly what was going on at that time. Professor Hunter remarks Jesus deliberately, because remember we said he was in total control of all things. He deliberately acted out the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And by his action on that day, riding on this donkey into the city of Jerusalem, he proclaimed in the very home and heart of Israel that he was the Messiah. But a Messiah without arms, a Messiah without an army, a Messiah who is riding in lowly pomp that road of the, that the Spirit marked out for the servant of the Lord, a road on whichever darker fell the shadow of a cross. Now, Jesus, one would think, one would think that Jesus would have been rejoicing over that welcome. But he didn't. He didn't. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 19, right, at the, right after that, here's what it says. And when he was come near, he beheld the city. He looked upon the city of Jerusalem. And he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come, the days will come upon you, that your enemies will cast the trench round about you. They will besiege the city. And they're going to circle it around. And they're going to hem you in from every side. And they will lay even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they will not leave one stone standing upon another. So what is Jesus saying? It's 33 AD. People are proclaiming him liberate now. Liberate us now. Free us now. Hosanna. Save us now. And he rejected all that. They, under, they did not understand exactly who he was and why he had come. And he says, because you did not understand it, the day is coming. And it happened in 70 AD. This was 33 AD when Jesus said this. When your city is going to be completely destroyed. Every stone is going to be turned over. It's going to be leveled to the ground because you did not understand the day of your visitation. You didn't know it. You didn't see it. They had every bit of evidence in the scriptures. We'll talk about this. So that prophecy was literally fulfilled in 70 AD. The time of Israel's visitation by the Messiah was Christ's presentation as king on Palm Sunday, Nisan the 10th, in 33 A.D. Psalm 118, verse 4. Let me read you a verse from Luke, 1937. Watch this. Listen. 
When he was come near, even at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. He's our man. And here's what they were saying, Luke 19.38. Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, they didn't pick that out of a hat. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What is he saying now? Verse 25. Save now, Hosanna. Beseech thee. Save now, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee. Send now prosperity. Set up your kingdom. Get rid of these Romans. Set us free. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Psalm 118.24 confirms that the day that the Lord hath made, in other words, the day that God hath set aside for Christ's formal presentation as the King of Israel, was that Sunday. We sing that song. This is the day right, that the Lord hath made the chorus. Well, that's nice to sing that. But that was the day. That's what that psalm was was about. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Set apart when he would present himself as our Messiah. But they missed it. They missed it. Mark 11, 11 says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, right up on the mount. And we looked around about all Upon all things, it was evening. He went out into Bethany with the twelve. About a mile and a half to two mile walk back to Bethany. Wow, talk about anticlimactic. What did Jesus do? What did the liberator do? What did the king do? Nothing. Nothing. He looks around and he goes back to Bethany. I just want to tell you, someday, another multitude of people, too massive to count, to number, will present palm branches before the Lord Jesus. And in heaven they will proclaim their victory and freedom, freedom from sin from the tyranny of sin, and they will shout, salvation belongs to our God. He saved us. Revelation 7, 9, And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God, clothed with white robes, these people were. And what does it say? Palms in their hands. Palms in their hands. And cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. 
Now, I don't have time to get into this, but you have a little chart. You have the little chart in the the bottom of your outline, if you grabbed an outline. The day that the Lord hath made that they missed, the day of Christ's visitation, they should have understood it because Daniel the prophet, in Daniel chapter 9, in one of the greatest prophecies of the Bible, revealed when Messiah would present himself formally to Israel as king. We don't have the chance to go through that now. It would take much, much, much more time than I have. But you can find all kinds of information on this if you want to search it. Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks Daniel 9, 25 through 27. But he began that prophecy and he said that the weeks would be, that he was speaking about were, were heptads in the Hebrew. They were, there were weeks of years and there would be seven years and then there would be 62 years, which means that there would be 49 years and then 434 years from the time that a decree, the starting point would, would be a t- decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Now you need to understand that a city was not considered rebuilt. You, could re- you can have the temple, but it was not considered rebuilt until the walls of the city were in place. So that decree went out by Artaxerxes Longimanus. And that was in, on the date there, 444 B.C., and then that was the, the seven-year period there where, which began that. And then the 62 seven, year seven, 62 sevens or 434 years would follow after that. And those would be troubling times for Israel, would continue in Israel. The, the first part of the decree ends with the completion of the temple walls, the 49 years. The second part of that mathematical equation ends with the coming of Messiah. Now, if you take a prophetic year of 360 years, which the Jews followed, and you calculated this all out, it would come to 173,880 days, right to the exact date on the Jewish calendar that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, the day of his visitation. And they missed it. And Jesus says, because you did not receive me as the king, not the king, but the Savior to save you from your sins. The city is going to be destroyed. And it was. The disappointment that Jesus didn't liberate them, the disappointment that followed Sunday, led to dissatisfaction. A few days he would be arrested. People would be calling calling out for his death. Give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. They would reject him. Not all of them. But he'd be put to death as a common criminal. So here's how I want to end this morning. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. I have news for you. He didn't come to meet yours either. Life is hard. Just like Isaac said to me, why, why all this trouble? If there's a God, why did Because he didn't come to meet your expectations. He didn't come to meet mine. He didn't promise us freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He promised us the freedom and deliverance from our sins. And that took his death upon the cross. 
So does being a Christian mean victory now? No. No. It's not a battle for our rights and our liberation. It's not about victory now. Does it mean that God is going to defeat His enemies now? Jesus says they persecuted me. They will also persecute you. Does it mean that God is going to defend His enemies now? Do you know the disciples had such a high expectation that when they were coming down from, from, uh, on that, way, that road to Jerusalem, when Jesus left Ephraim, they passed through a village in Samaria, and the sons of thunder, what do they want to do? Wow, we're going to Jerusalem. The party's going to begin. The king is coming. We're going to be liberated. Lord, let's start the fireworks now. Send fire down from heaven and burn up these Samaritans because they're rejecting you. That's nationalism. Give us our country back. He's going to do it. No, he didn't. And he didn't come to meet my expectations because his kingdom is not of this world presently. But it will come to earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not now. What is the lot of us as disciples now? Not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Take up your cross and follow me. And Kim mentioned before, in Nigeria, they're being slaughtered. The lambs of God are being slaughtered. All over the world, Christians are being put to death for the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, the path of discipleship, following Jesus, is one of hardship, suffering, persecution, and even death for some. It means that you will not be accepted, widely accepted. You will be misunderstood and rejected. And as the heart of men gets more and more evil, it will get worse and worse, not better. And there is no man, no human being that is going to deliver us. No Donald Trump riding on a white horse is going to come in and save the day. But God will have his way, as he always does, in the end, in his time not ours.